Baptist Broadcast. Thank you for tuning in through Spotify, through iTunes, through Podcast Addict, Anchor.fm, and other platforms that Anchor pipes us out to. Also, if you're watching on YouTube, you see that subscribe button kind of blinking down there in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen. That's to remind you to click the real subscribe button below this video and the bell for continued notifications. Guys, Baptist political theology languishes in our current age. And that is lamentable because we live at a time when there needs to be a lot of... um, There needs to be a lot of awareness of how the Christian ought to uh, live in this world in light of certain political things uh, that have taken place over the last two years. Anyway, long story short, that's why you guys need to check out Under God, Over the People by Oliver Allman Smith. The subtitle of the book is The Calling and Accountability of Civil Government. So if you want a good God and government kind of primer from a Baptist confessional Baptist uh, standpoint, then under God over the people would be great. It's even got 24, uh, chapter 24, uh, paragraph 1, quoted on, uh, on the front cover of it down here, which reads, God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him over the people for his glo- own glory and the public good, and to this end hath armed them with the power of the sword for defense and encouragement of them that do good and for the punishment of evildoers. So check that out. You can get that, pick up a copy on brokenwharf.com, B-R-O-K-E-N, wharf, W-H-A-R-F-E.com. And I think you can also order it on Amazon. You might give it a check as well. So what I want to do today is I want to, um, I don't know if this will be the only video where I talk about this or if it will be kind of like a, a little informal series that I'll do here on the channel. Uh, But at our church, uh, Wednesday nights, this last Wednesday night, I started going through what is often called the Great Tradition. And I started going through the Great Tradition from a particular text in Scripture, which is 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So if you look at 2 Thessalonians 2.15, that's where we read the Apostle Paul talking or writing to the church at Thessalonica, the second letter he sent to them. He says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. And one of the first things that we talked about um, in our in our little mini uh, Wednesday night series uh, this past Wednesday is, firstly and foremostly, the word tradition. Uh, we kind of put in the dock whether or not uh, tradition as an English term is a correct translation of the word paradosis. Um, which is the term that's used there in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. If you look at 2 Thessalonians 2.15, you'll see that the word, if you have like an interlinear uh, Bible or something like that, um, or even if you just have a Greek New Testament, if you have Logos, if you have Accordance, if you have Olive Tree with the Greek New Testament in it, you should be able to, to look at the Greek term behind the English translation traditions in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. And it is paradosis, and uh, the the lexical meaning would be something like tradition. Uh, you could even use ordinance or instruction, but the gist here is, is that this is something that is passed down to someone else. Um, you can think of how we how we traditionally conceive of tradition, and that is former generations passed down a custom 
or a, uh, a proverb, life lessons, so on and so forth, to the next or the following generation. And so the idea here is, is that, but with regard to sacred theology, uh, sacred doctrine, the Christian doctrine that we have from Scripture or that Scripture gives to us, the articles of faith here. Um, if you look at the text in context, uh, so not just verse 15 here, but starting really at verse 13, we read, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. So here we're not talking about a tradition that comes in addition to Scripture that's not itself Scripture or contains other things that's not otherwise delivered to us in Scripture. We're talking about something that is is essentially one and the same with scriptural data. This tradition here, contrary to the Roman Catholic Church and what they think tradition is, this tradition here that Paul speaks of is related to the gospel. It's related to gospel ordinances or gospel instruction that's to be passed down. And it is passed down uh, in view of um, uh, in view of uh, the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, that's the that's verse 14, and then the conclusion is drawn, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught whether by word or our epistle. So you get the idea that this, this kind of conclusive clause here in verse 15, therefore, brethren, stand fast, the two commandments, stand fast, imperative, hold, imperative, the traditions which you were taught is related to obtaining the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 14, which is related to and caused by the calling by the gospel in verse 14a. And so uh, we're not looking at anything here that's fundamentally different than what's delivered to us through the apostles in the New Testament and Holy Scripture. So we started looking really at the word at, at the word paradosis, the Greek word there. Um, first, it's used elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 11, 2. It says, um, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I have delivered them to you. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, which is just a chapter later, says, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition, singular, paradosis. I think it would be, uh, yeah, let's see here. I can, let's see, that is 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Da, 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 da. Um, yeah, so so paradosis paradosis in terms of the uh, in terms of the word itself, but paradosin in in context there as it's used in the in the singular. And so um, we have both both uses of the term paradosis in the singular and in the and in the plural. For example, in our text in two fifteen, it's in the plural. Hold the traditions. Whereas in uh, in chapter three verse six it's it's tradition it's in the singular, and um, and so this isn't the only this isn't the only text in which this term is used and translated to tradition or traditions, and it's also worth mentioning that there this word is used positively very few times. In fact, we've just covered most of the times that they are used. 
positively. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 Thessalonians 2, and 2 Thessalonians 3 are, are some of the few places where this term is actually used positively. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, paradosis doesn't really have a positive connotation. It's negatively um, used to describe the Pharisees and how they you know, kind of just blindly keep the traditions of their fathers uh, to the exclusion of the Word of God and so on and so forth. And so when this word's used positively, it behooves us to really pay attention to how it's being used. And I think it's being used here as a way to to denote or indicate uh, Christian the Christian faith, the body of, of doctrine that constitutes the Christian faith or what is to be believed. Um, it, if you look at the if you look into the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, it's the root word uh, parodidomai is used in the Septuagint. It's not used, so that word never appears, paradosis never appears, to my knowledge, in the Septuagint, it, the, but the root of the term does. Uh, and it's used within kind of like politico-military context, so in Joshua 6.2, where it says, See, I have given, the root word there, paradidomai, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king, and the mighty men of valor. So here it's it it the the idea is that Jericho is being given to another. And when we when we're looking at paradosis, we're looking more at informational content or instruction that is given from one person or one generation to another, the following generation or the pupil. Um and so the idea here is in in First Corinthians eleven and second Corinthians or second Thessalonians uh two and second Thessalonians three is is this is this is instruction that's been delivered, um, apostolic instruction that's been uh, that's been delivered. Now, some will say because the the translational range, I guess you could say, of paradosis, it, it could be translated. I think Calvin actually renders it in his commentary of Second Thessalonians to uh, institution. Uh, it can be, which is which is fine. It can be rendered to ordinance as well. Um, so the question is, is, is the English translation of the term unhelpful? Uh, because the English translation here in the New King James, and I think in pretty much other, any of the other translations, let me look at the uh, NAS. Um, so the NAS has traditions. Okay, so the NAS has traditions as well. So is that a helpful translation should we translate it instead to ordinance? I think some people would say, yeah, because every time we think of tradition, we think of the Roman Catholic Church or, or something like that. Or we think of, uh, you know, man-made traditions that have corrupted pure doctrine and so on and so forth. We think of legalistic traditions, right? There's all sorts of bad cultural connotations that come with the word tradition. Which caused some to say, oh, maybe we shouldn't, uh, maybe maybe we, we don't want to. I, well, I say it causes some to say, it may cause some to say, we don't, we don't want to render that word tradition. We think it's confusing, unhelpful, so on and so forth. But remember, the point here is something that's passed down from one person to another or given from a group of men, in this case the apostles, to the next generation of Christians uh, following thereafter. And so the word, that's just what a tradition is, right? It's just something that's given from one generation to another. Instruction. Uh, cultural um, uh, custom, and so on. And so I don't think it's an unhelpful uh, translation. It, it, the, the English word trans, uh, the, the English word tradition comes from, there's both a, 
uh, it comes from Latin. The Latin term is uh, traditionum, uh, means transmission, presentation, handing over. Uh, and you think of the I- idea of, of doctrine or custom being handed down or presented to the following generation or, or transmitted to the following generation. So that's the idea with, with, uh, with traditionum, a delivering of, 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 of something, instruction, of custom from one generation to another is surrendering it to the next generation. The, the French word tradition means the same thing. Um, and so it, that's just, I think what Paul's talking about here is exactly that. And so I don't think the word tradition, in spite of its bad cultural connotations and all of the abuses of the term, I don't think it's a wrong translation. I think it's a right translation from paradosis to the English term tradition. And recently, uh, the word tradition has been used within the context of the broader term, the great tradition. And the great tradition, which we find, you know, in, in, uh, in interpreting scripture with the great tradition, for example, Craig Carter's recent work, or um, contemplating God with the great tradition, the second, the second book that he, that he, that he, uh, that he wrote after, after the uh, hermeneutics one. Um, that, that phrase is being used and it, it's being used, um, in a way that I think is helpful. I think it's helpful because it's, it's being used to distinguish historically orthodox Christian doctrine and practice from that which is not historical in terms of its transmission throughout the whether whether or not it's it's in interpretation of scripture how scripture how these various heavy serious passages have been interpreted from generation to generation but it's also talking about you know uh, doctrines as they are dogmatically stated within creeds and confessions and or confessed by the individual christian the great tradition is being used as a term that distinguishes what Christians have always confessed to be true concerning who God is and what God has done from the various kind of augmentations or uh, detractions from that historical understanding of God and, and, um, and his word. And so I think it's helpful to to understand that the great tradition is not is not being used to intimate what Rome conceives to be tradition, which is an alternate source of authority alongside scripture. I shouldn't say alternate, it's a side-by-side source of authority or we might say a coordinate source of authority alongside scripture. It consists of authoritative, infallible, uh, interpretive norms. It, it consists of, it. they would go so far as to say, well, it's the church really that norms what scripture is. Um, and, 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 you know, that's how they, one of the, one of the angles from which they can come to argue for the Apocrypha, the inclusion of the Apocrypha, um, is to say, well, it's, it's really the church that is given the prerogative to define what God's word is. So that's that's Rome's kind of conception of tradition, that it is like this coordinate authority alongside scripture. And even 
to one extent or another determinative of what Scripture is. Yes, they would say, well, Scripture as an organism is primary, prima scriptura, right? But the church as an as an authority structure and as a a a kind of a a guiding light to uh, those who 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 number themselves within her pale has the authority to declare what the scriptures are to those people. And not only what the scriptures are as an organism or as to its ontology, but but also the interpretation of it at certain key points. And then you have the tradition. It, it, it expands out further than just defining what Scripture is and what Scripture means. It expands out far beyond that. The feast days, worship practice, so on and so forth, can all be measured by uh, the traditionary approach of the Roman Catholic Church. And so when the great tradition is being mentioned by someone like Craig Carter, nothing like that is on the table. You can read his book, Interpreting Scripture of the Great Tradition. Nothing like that is on the table. As it exists in Credo Magazine, Dr. Barrett, nothing is like that, even close to that, being represented being represented by the Credo guys or by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, for that matter. And so um, I think the emphasis of the Great Tradition is to is to distinguish what has always those areas of Christian doctrine that have been confessed universally by Christians for the last two millennia, to distinguish that from uh, various augmentations and perversions of that. Um, so one of the helpful things that, that um, the great tradition using that terminology does is it says, well, the doctrine of God, this this formulation, let's say, let's take chapter 2 uh, of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. That articulation of the doctrine of God is part of the great tradition. Why is it part of the great tradition? Because this is just what Christians have always confessed concerning God. Um, and there are certain things that, that just were not subject to uh, difference, the various differences, serious differences, uh, they were not subject to uh, fierce debate and um, and and skeptical uh, doubt as to what these things were. These were just givens. Um, it's interesting, you know, if you were to read in their in their language, paragraph one, chapter two of the Second London Confession of Faith, to someone like Thomas Aquinas or you know some of the Latins, the medievals. Or someone uh, who who may have been speaking Greek, say the Cappadocians, um, and there may have to be some explaining that happens in terms of what we mean by some of the terms, because some of the terms were not, uh, perhaps like subsistence, may not have been used by the Cappadocians, though I tend to think it was. Um, you read that paragraph to the Cappadocians in the 4th century, if you were to go back in time, they'd have no problem with it. They'd have no problem with it. There are those now who are articulating their doctrines of God, respectively. Let's say, for example, Dr. Frame's doctrine of God in his massive tome on God, where he says there are two existences in God, and there is, in some measure, an entering into the creational process 
by means of the secondary existence that God takes to himself. And so that accounts for the kind of analogical predication in the Old Testament which makes God seem to be as if he's kind of giving and taking with his creatures, moving, thinking, you know, kind of experiencing the ebb and flow with his creatures as he goes along. And he articulates this position, which he makes his own, in the midst of interacting with with uh, with process theism, which he's denying. But as he's denying process theism, he's setting forth this other position. So we would want to say that that is not what Christians have confessed over the last 2,000 years, right? You, you take the first chapter of the Second London Confession to the Cappadocians, and they'd be like, yeah, we're on board here, interestingly enough, because the Second London was written in the, in the 17th century, Cappadocians, 4th century. And yet you have a great deal of... of what we might call Catholic united understanding there of the doctrine of God. But you take Frame's doctrine of God, which again, you can find in his book, The Theology of God or something like that. I can't remember what it's titled. I have it somewhere around here. I think it might be at my church office. Um, you take that doctrine of God to, uh, to the Cappadocians and they'll be like, what are you talking about here? Um, or you take that doctrine of God to someone like Thomas Aquinas, he's going to be like, what are you talking about here? You take that doctrine of God to John Calvin, and he's going to be wondering what in the world you're talking about. And, and the same goes for the, the uh, post-reformed or post-reformational um, theologians as well. So the, the term great tradition, it's used to, to denote what has historically been confessed concerning these 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 principles of the Christian faith, these first things. Um, and, and it's also used to, to denote interpret Christian interpretive practice when it comes to approaching the Word of God. How, how is the Bible to be interpreted? Is it to be interpreted in light of enlightenment presuppositions that we've absorbed into our culture and society over the last 350 years? No. I mean, Carter essentially says, no, absolutely not. That's we are children of the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment has not been very kind to uh, Christians in terms of how Christians approach the text of Holy Scripture. And so, um, what we would want to say is that the great is that in the great tradition, there's a consistency from really day one of Christianity. I mean, even looking at the New Testament use of the Old Testament, and then moving on uh, to post-canonical authors. Uh, in the early church, there's a cons there's an interpretive consistency in the tradition. Even I think Keith Stanglin does a good job of showing how Origen, though he he doesn't stick to his principles consistently and comes up with a with a lot of I think bad conclusions, uh, and and that's usually known as Origen's over allegorization of the text. But in principle, Origen didn't have anything. Didn't, didn't actually differ in terms of his stated approach to the text of, of Scripture, didn't differ really from someone like Augustine. Um, and Augustine didn't really differ a whole lot from someone like Calvin. Uh, in principle, they're, you know, they're practicing it diversely, right? But they're, they're essentially starting the same way. And of course, they're practicing it diversely because men are bound to do that. Um, there's, there's going to be a diversity in how these, these principal starting points are applied. But for the most part, I, and I think Stanglin in, in, in um, the letter in Spirit of Biblical Interpretation does a good job of showing this in his historical survey there, 
that there's a great deal of consistency in biblical interpretation. So the great tradition is also used to reference that. That's kind of what Craig Carter is getting at with the interpretation of interpreting Scripture with a great tradition is what is the normative practice of Christians throughout the last 2,000 years in terms of approaching the text of Scripture? You know, how are the Cappadocians, how are the, how are the Nicene fathers interpreting Scripture? How did they get the doctrine? How, uh, how did the early church come to formulate the doctrine of the Trinity like they did? Um, what is the what is the what is the hermeneutic that that brought them to those dogmatic or systematic conclusions? Uh, and we want to be on that same page, right? We want a hermeneutic that is consistent with that which we confess to be true. We want a hermeneutic that consistently gets us to the Trinity, that consistently gets us to the hypostatic union, that consistently gets us to. Um, to our, our fully formulated uh, Christology and so on and so forth. And so the great tradition includes, uh, you know, interpretive practice. What's, what's the interpretive methodology uh, that Christians have utilized uh, throughout the ages? Okay, so, um, and all of this, by the way, is nothing that is separate or divorced or separately communicated apart from the Word of God itself. Scripture gives us these tools and part of the reason we're able to say that so certainly now, I mean, we're not having to go and rework the exegetical wheel, are we? Um, there are there have been men that have come before us that have shown us how the scriptures teach us how to interpret the scriptures, right? G.K. Beale, Gerhardus Voss, those men are standing on other biblical theologians that came before them. Voss did not invent biblical theology. Uh, you look at the Puritans. You look at someone like um, uh, Whitaker or uh, you know some of the some of the Westminster divines um, uh, and so on. The Bab I mean Benjamin Keach. Benjamin Keach and his tropologia is so valuable in terms of showing us how how scripture interacts with scripture. Um, and, and so there's this, there's this, there's this scriptural way of approaching scripture. And that is testified unto by the last 2000 years of Christians approaching scripture, right? We can look back in church history and we could say, this is what they were doing. That's what they were doing. That's what they were doing. Why were they? Why do they have all of that in common? From someone like Augustine to someone like Anselm to someone like John Calvin and someone like John Owen. Why are they all doing? Why do they all have these principal things in common? Maybe that means something for me. Maybe I'm missing something that they all had that I don't have yet. Right. So um, that's the function of the great tradition. It's it's a witness to what's already in the scriptures, right? It, it's a witness. So when we take the Nicene Creed and we say, yeah, the Nicene Creed is part of the great tradition, we're not saying that the Nicene Creed is like another source of revelation, right? We're saying that the Nicene Creed is a an accurate and accepted interpretation of the scriptural data. And it's it's at this point, almost 2,000, about 1,700 years down the road, 
you can't just sit in your closet with your Bible and say that's not that creed's not right. It's not right. Why? Because then at that point you're going to be confessing that Christ's bride has been getting it wrong for two thousand years or seventeen hundred years, greater part of her existence. She's been getting it wrong, and you doing theology and exegesis on your own are the one that's getting it right. I mean, how does that sound, right? Uh, and, and I don't think that that's, the, that's not the methodology that's even given to us in the Scriptures. Scripture assumes that Christians are going to be doing biblical interpretation within the context of the church, within a saintly context, within a, especially on the big, big questions. Uh, on the big questions, Christians are going to be doing exegesis in concert with other Christians, past and present. And so that's that's the whole idea with the great tradition. The great tradition is to say that I'm not reinventing Christianity, right? The second you start to reinvent a doctrine of God, or you start to reinvent the precise definition of the Trinity, or you start to reinvent Christology, or you start to reinvent the gospel and so on and so forth, the second you start to do that, you, you are essentially saying that you, according to your own limited understanding, by yourself, you are reinventing Christianity. You're not just, you're not just forming a different opinion about this or that doctrine, because you're tinkering with the most fundamental things. What makes Christianity Christianity is what you're tinkering with, and so if you're going to reinvent that, if you're going to rework the wheel there, you're essentially reworking the entire DNA of the Christian faith. And that's a very, uh, I think that's a very, if, if, if you're just okay with doing that, I think that's a very dangerous place to be in. It's a very dangerous place to be in. So that's 30 minutes. I think that's enough. <laughs> Here in my outline in terms of what we're going through at, uh, at our church with the great tradition from 2 Thessalonians 2.15. We only made it through the first the first Roman numeral here, the, the word tradition. And I just kind of expanded upon what we mean by the great tradition when we use it. And uh, maybe we'll do some more on this. Hopefully, hopefully we can. But uh, been on been on it for 30 minutes now. I think that's long enough. Hopefully it was helpful. If it was, please subscribe to the channel and click the bell for continued notifications. Thumbs up would be nice. A share would be nice as well. If it's helpful to you, it might be helpful for others. God bless you guys.